0: Chapter fourteen. Of Hester: A Story of Contemporary Life. Volume three, by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen: The Settlement. The records of the next few days were agitated and full of excitement. Day after day Catherine spent at the bank, immersed in calculations and consultations with every one who could throw the slightest light upon the matter. Everything oozed out by degrees, and it was said now that Edward was being hunted down by detectives, now that he had escaped altogether, now that his defalcations were so tremendous that nothing but absolute ruin was possible for Vernon's, now that there was enough left to make a fight upon if only the creditors would be merciful and give time and have patience. The usual panic with which such news is received was somehow tempered in this case, It was thought in the district that Catherine Vernon was enormously rich and independent of the bank, and when it was known that she had not abandoned it, but in her old age had come back and was in the office every day, struggling to retrieve affairs, there was nobody short of the financial authorities of the place who did not believe that all was safe. Catherine Vernon would not see any harm come to the bank. Catherine Vernon would see everybody paid. This popular faith held up with a certainty of obstinate prepossession which was worth so much solid capital to the tottering house. Catherine herself placed everything she had in the world in the common stock. She it was who took the lead in all the discussions. She rejected the provisions for her own comfort which everybody concerned was anxious to make. The prevailing feeling among all who had any power was at first that the re-establishment of the old concern was hopeless but that enough might be saved out of the wreck to enable Catherine to end her days in peace. To this she opposed a determined negative. She would have no arrangement made on her behalf. Do you think I want, she cried, to end my days in peace? I am ready to die fighting on the contrary rather than sacrifice the place my father lived and died in and his father before him. Don't speak of peace to me. It was when they perceived that she was immovable in this point, and was determined to denude herself of everything, that the old contemporaries who had stood by her before, in her gallant struggle, and had been her competitors, and had lived to see themselves distanced by Catherine, had felt it impossible to persevere in their refusal to help. She would have no charity, she declared with a flushed cheek. Help for Vernons? Yes, to set them on their feet again, with the certainty that nobody should lose a penny in the long run. For that, she would thank them with a full heart. But help for herself, to keep her in a show of comfort when the reality was gone? No. Not a farthing, she said. I am not afraid of the workhouse, said Catherine, with proud calm, and I have a right to a Vernon almshouse, the first that is vacant. Nobody will deny that I am Redborough born and of good reputation. I will not take a penny. Do you think I could not live in a single room and eat my rations like another? It is because you don't know Catherine Vernon yet. The old man who had known Catherine Vernon all her life could not withstand this. We must manage it for her. We must do it somehow, they said. Vernon's is an old name among us. There is no name in all the district "'that the people have such confidence in. "'We must try, sir, we must try,' they began to say to each other, "'to help her through. "'The young men, many of them, were impatient "'and would have refused to consider the question at all. "'What had an old woman to do with business? "'She ought to be thankful if she was allowed a maintenance "'and to terminate her days in comfort. "'But on this point there was not another word to be said. "'The Grange and everything in it was to be sold.' The White House and the old furniture, part of which Mrs. John still remembered so fondly. There was no question as to that. We are prepared to sacrifice everything, Catherine said. What we desire is not to keep up any false pretense, but to carry on our business and recover ourselves by your help. Dismiss me from your mind. I will take my chance. But think of Vernon's, which is not hopeless, which has life in it yet. Old Mr. Rule on his side had pages upon pages of statements to put before the gentleman. The week was one of terrible suspense and misery, but at the end, though with conditions that were very hard upon the pride of the family, it was decided at last in favor of the bank. Certain great capitalists came forward to prop it up. New blood was put into it in the shape of an enterprising manager who was to guide Harry's steps. There were bitternesses, as there is in every cup that is administered by strangers, but Catherine had gained her object, and she made no complaint. Vernon's would continue, and Harry might have it in his power still to retrieve the family fortunes. As for all the rest, what did it matter? She was a woman who was, or thought herself, very independent of material conditions, whether she lived in the Grange or one of the Vernon almshouses, what did it matter to her? She did not care for fine eating or fine clothing. Besides, my clothes will last out my time, she said with a smile. The week's struggle had been good for her. She had not forgotten the great and enduring grief which lay behind all this, but she had not had time to think of it. She had put it away out of her mind as a strong nature can till her work was done. It was waiting for her to overwhelm her, but in the meantime she was strong. Roland Ashton hurried down as soon as the terrible news reached him. He was eager to tell her his own connection with it, to prove to her that it was not he who had led Edward into speculation, that he had done his utmost to restrain him, and had even, in his anxiety, been willing to embark on what he felt to be a hazardous course in order to save Edward from the rashness he feared. He came down with all his details ready and a burning anxiety to set himself right. But when he reached the scene of all their troubles, Roland never said a word to Catherine on the subject. Such details were beyond the case. She had never willingly spoken of Edward. When it was possible, she ignored him altogether. The investigations which had been set on foot and which had revealed the greater part of his secrets she had been compelled to know of, but had spoken to no one about them since the first day his name had scarcely passed her lips. Harry only had been allowed to tell her that he had baffled all the attempts made to find him and had escaped. The search after him had been, indeed, made rather to satisfy anxiety than with any design of punishment, for the other partners in the bank were responsible for everything, and it was on their shoulders that the burden had to fall. He disappeared as if he had fallen into the sea, or been lost in a railway accident. The most wonderful complication of all, the companionship in which he had left England, was not told to her then. It threw to all the others a horrible mockery upon the whole story. There was a bitter sort of smile upon Roland's face when he sat with the old people and told them all the investigations he had made, the incredulous indignation with which he had received the first idea that Emma's disappearance could be connected with that of Edward, the growing certainty that it was so, and finally the receipt of her letter, which he brought them to read. The old people were very sad for their beloved Catherine and little inclined to laugh. But the old captain indulged in a tremulous roar which was half a groan, and the old lady, who allowed that her sense of humor was small, gave a grieved smile when it was read to her. This is what Emma said, "'Dear Roland, I think it my duty to let you know, as it was, so to speak, in your house I was living at the time, how it is that I had made up my mind at a very short notice and couldn't even go through the form of referring Edward to you. I met him in the train, as you will probably have heard. I was rather sorry about leaving Redborough, and so was he, too, till he saw me beside him.' And then it turned out that he had been very much struck with me at Ellen Maradute's parties and would have spoken then but for some entanglements that were of old standing and that he could not shake off. I need not mention any names, but if I say it was someone that was quite out of the question, someone that was detested at the Grange, you will know. He told me he was leaving England forever, and would I come with him? You know, I have always thought it my first duty to get settled, being the youngest and without any fixed home. So, after thinking it over for an hour or two, and him being so anxious to come to the point, which is generally just where gentlemen are so slow, I thought it best to consent. We were married before a registrar, but he says that is just as legal as in church. It was at the Registrar's in Holywood Street, Trentham Square. We are going to travel and may be moving about for a good while, but when we settle I shall let you know. I am glad to tell you that we shall be quite well off and have everything very handsome and Edward never grudges me anything I fancy. Give my love to them all and let them know I am as happy as possible, and that I am Mrs. Edward Vernon now, which is one of the prettiest names I know. Your affectionate sister, Emma. This was the last that was heard of this strange pair for a number of years. They discovered that Edward, after many losses, had made a sudden successful venture, which had brought him a sum so large as to turn his head. He had been utterly demoralized by all the excitements he had passed through, and the sense of a reckoning which he could never meet, and he had not given himself time to think. He disappeared into the unknown with his ill-gotten gains, and the wife he had picked up in the midnight train, and was seen no more. As for poor Algernon Meridoux, who was his victim? although only as his own eagerness and that of his wife to get money anyhow, made him so, he had to descend, like all the rest, from his temporary grandeur and gaiety. Old Meridieu was as stern now as he had been indulgent before, and Ellen, who had been almost worshipped as one of the Vernons when she glorified the family by entering it, was now the object of everybody's scoffs and accusations. But Ellen was a girl of spirit and equal to the circumstances. Algernon got a humble place in the bank, and the little family lived with Harry, putting their small means together until better days came. But adversity and a determination at least not to let herself be insignificant had so inspiring an effect upon Ellen that she kept the impoverished household as gay as the extravagant one had been by cheaper and better means. The Mariju girls, once so subservient, learned what she called their place when she was poor, more effectually than they had done when she was rich. And her brother, always by her, who, though he had losses, was still the chief partner in the bank, Catherine Vernon's nephew, and the bearer of a name which commanded respect in all the district, kept the balance even. When Vernon's flourished again, Algernon became a partner, and all the past grandeurs of the beginning were more than realized. In the meantime, however, when it had just been decided that Vernon's, bolstered up by a great deal of supplementary aid, was to go on again, there was much commotion among all the dependents of the house. For one thing it was decided that, as the Grange was to be sold, the most natural refuge for Catherine was at the Vernonry, her own house from which some of her dependents must go to make room for her. This was the one point upon which she had made no personal decision for it hurt her pride to be obliged to dismiss one of those for whom she had provided shelter so long. There had been a great effort made to make her retain the Grange and continue her life in its usual course, a little retrenched and pared away, yet without any great disturbance of the habitual use and wont. This she would not consent to, making the protest we have seen, that external circumstances were nothing to her, that, one of the Vernon almshouses would be as good a shelter as any other for an old woman. But she shrank from bidding any one of her pensioners to make room for her in the Vernonry. It raised a wonderful commotion, as may be supposed, in the house itself. All the dwellers on the garden side were disposed to think that Mrs. Reginald, whose boys were now growing up, and two of them in what their mother called positions, was the right person to go. But Mrs. Reginald herself was of opinion that her house, a good deal battered and knocked about by the boys in the course of their bringing up, was not in a fit state to receive Catherine Vernon, and that the other side, which was the best, was the natural place for her. The Miss Vernon Ridgeways could think or speak of nothing else. "'Our little place,' they said, "'is far too small for Catherine. She could not turn around in it. Of course we would turn out in a moment. It would be our duty.' But dear Catherine, used to such large rooms, what could she do in ours, which is the size of a pocket handkerchief? And if Mrs. Reginald will not budge, why, there is Mrs. John. She is so intimate with Catherine nowadays. Hester, that used to be such a rebel, and whom Catherine, we all know, could not endure, is always there. Dear me, of course, there cannot be a doubt about it. Mrs. John's house is the right thing. She must have that, which was a great relief to their minds. Mr. Mildmay Vernon made a great many faces over his newspaper as he sat in the summer house. He reflected that the hot water pipes would be sure to get out of order in winter, and who would now repair them. He did not commit himself by any remark, but he thought the more. When Mrs. John told him of the opinion of the sisters and consulted him with a troubled countenance, he only shook his head. I am sure I would do anything for Catherine, Mrs. John said. "'especially now when she is in trouble. "'But we cannot go far from here, "'for Hester is so much with her. "'And where are we to get a house? "'There is nothing within reach "'but that little cottage on the road. "'I am sure if I were Mrs. Reginald, "'with no particular tie, "'and her boys in town, "'such a long way to come, "'I don't think I should have any doubt "'as to what my duty was.' "'It was a question which Hester "'at last solved in her hasty way.' declaring that wherever they lived, Catherine must have the best place in her own house, a principle to which her mother was obliged to make a faltering adhesion. But while every one was thus resisting, Mr. Mildmay Vernon was carrying on his reflections about the hot water pipes. "'She put me next to the trees on account of my rheumatism,' he said to himself. "'I know she did, and I shall never live through a winter if the apparatus gets out of gear.' and I can't afford to pay for the fire, that's clear. The result of which reflection was that Mr. Mildmay Vernon made it known that he had received a legacy which would make a little addition to his income, and he could not think any longer of taking up room which he believed was wanted. Besides, one may accept a favor from one's cousin, he said, especially when it is not much of a favor, being the damp part of the house which few people would have taken had they been paid for doing so. But to be indebted to a firm of bankrupts is impossible, Mr. Mildmay Vernon said. He took his departure in the beginning of the winter, just when the want of the hot water pipes would be beginning to make itself felt. And it was almost without consulting her mother that Hester made arrangements for removing their few household goods into his house, to leave their own free for the mistress of all. Mrs. John consented to the arrangement, but not without a few tears. It is not that I mind the difference, she said, in the size of the rooms, or anything of that sort, but it feels like coming down in the world. We have all come down in the world, said Hester, and Catherine most of all. And then Mrs. John cried for Catherine, as she had first done for herself, and resisted no more. End of chapter 14. Read by Anne Erickson, Toronto.